Hello, beautiful people. Thank you for joining me in reading A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. Today, we are going to be reading two chapters, 28 and 29. Starting with chapter 28. The future was a near thing to Katie. She had a way of saying, Christmas will be here before you know it or at the beginning of vacation. School will be starting before you know it. In the spring, when Francie discarded her long drawers and joyously flung them away, Mama made her pick them up again, saying, You'll need them soon enough again. Winter will be here before you know it. What was Mama talking about? Spring had just started. The winter would never come again. A small child has little idea of the future. Next week is as far ahead as his future stretches, and the year between Christmas and Christmas again is an eternity. So time was with Francie, up until her 11th year. Between her 11th and 12th birthday, things changed. The future came along quicker. The days seemed shorter, and the weeks seemed to have less days in them. Henny Gaddis died, and this had something to do with it. She had always heard that Henny was going to die. She heard about it so much that she finally got to believe he would die, but that would be a long, long time away. Now the long time had come. The something which had been a future was now a present and would become a past. Francie wondered whether someone had to die to make that clear to a child. But no, Grandfather Romilly had died when she was nine, a week after she made her first communion, and, as she remembered, Christmas still had seemed far away at that time. Things were changing so fast for Francie now that she got mixed up. Neely, who was a year younger than she, grew suddenly and got to be a head taller. Maudie Donovan moved away. When she returned on a visit three months later, Francie found her different. Maudie had developed in a womanly way during those three months. Francie, who knew Mama was always right, found out that she was wrong once in a while. She discovered that some of the things she loved so much in her father were considered very comical to other people. The scales at the tea store did not shine so brightly anymore, and she found the bins were chipped and shabby looking. She stopped watching for Mr. Timoni to come home on Saturday nights from his New York jaunts. All of a sudden, she thought it was silly that he lived so and went to New York and came home longing for where he had been. He had money. Why didn't he just go over to New York and live there if he liked it so much? Everything was changing. Francie was in a panic. Her world was slipping away from her and what would take its place? Still, what was different anyhow? She read a page from the Bible and Shakespeare every night, the same as always. She practiced the piano every day for an hour. She put pennies in the tin can bank. The junk shop was still there, 
The stores were all the same. Nothing was changing. She was the one who was changing. She told Papa about it. He made her stick out her tongue and he felt her wrist. He shook his head sadly and said, You have a bad case, a very bad case. Of what? Growing up? Growing up spoiled a lot of things. It spoiled the nice game they had when there was nothing to eat in the house. When money gave out and food ran low, Katie and the children pretended they were explorers discovering the North Pole and had been trapped by a blizzard in a cave with just a little food. They had to make it last till help came. Mama divided up what food there was in the cupboard and called it rations, and when the children were still hungry after a meal, she'd say, Courage, my men, help will come soon. When some money came in and Mama bought a lot of groceries, she bought a little cake as celebration, and she'd stick a penny flag in it and say, We made it, men. We got to the North Pole. One day, after one of those rescues, Francie asked Mama, When explorers get hungry and suffer like that, it's for a reason. Something big comes out of it. They discover the North Pole. But what big thing comes out of us being hungry like that? Katie looked tired all of a sudden. She said something Francie didn't understand at the time. She said, You found the catch in it. Growing up spoiled the theater for Francie. Well, not the theater exactly, but the plays. She found she was becoming dissatisfied with the way things just happened in the nick of time. Francie loved the theater dearly. She had once wanted to be a hand organ lady, then a school teacher. After her first communion, she wanted to be a nun. At 11, she wanted to be an actress. If the Williamsburg kids knew nothing else, they knew their theater. In those days, there were so many good stock companies in the neighborhood, Blaney's, Course Payton's, and Phillips Lyceum. The Lyceum was just around the corner. Local residents called it the Lice first and then changed that into the Louse. Francie went there every Saturday afternoon, except for when it was closed for the summer, when she could scrape up a dime. She went into the gallery and often waited in line an hour before the show opened in order to get a seat in the first row. She was in love with Harold Clarence, the leading man. She waited at the stage door after the Saturday matinee and followed him to the shabby brownstone house where he lived, untheatrically, in a modest, furnished room. Even on the street, he had the stiff-legged walk of the old-time actor, and his face was baby pink, as though he still had juvenile grease paint on it. He walked stiff-leggedly and leisurely, looking neither to the right nor left and smoking an important-looking cigar, which he threw away before he entered the house, as his landlady did not permit the great man to smoke in her rooms. Francie stood at the curb, looking down reverently at the discarded butt. She took the paper ring off it and wore it for a week, pretending it was his engagement ring to her. 
One Saturday, Harold and his company put on The Minister's Sweetheart, in which the handsome village minister was in love with Jerry Morehouse, the leading lady. Somehow, the heroine had to seek work in a grocery store. There was a villainess also in love with the handsome young minister and out to get the heroine. She swaggered into the store in her unvillage-like furs and diamonds and regally ordered a pound of coffee. There was a dreadful moment when she uttered the fatal words, Grind it! The audience groaned. It had been planted that the delicate, beautiful heroine wasn't strong enough to turn the great wheel. It had also been planted that her job was contingent on her being able to grind coffee. She struggled like anything but couldn't get the wheel to go round even once. She pleaded with the villainess, told her how much she needed the job. The villainess repeated, grind it. When all seemed lost, handsome Harold entered with his pink face and his clerical garb. Taking in the situation, he threw his wide minister's hat clear across the stage in a dramatic but unseemly gesture, stepped stiff-leggedly to the machine and ground the coffee, and thus saved the heroine. There was an odd silence as the odor of freshly ground coffee permeated the theater. Then Bedlam broke loose. Real coffee! Realism in the theater! Everyone had seen coffee ground a thousand times, but on the stage it was a revolutionary thing. The villainess gnashed her teeth and said, Foiled again! Harold embraced Jerry, making her face upstage, and the curtain came down. During intermission, Francie did not join the other kids in the interim pastime of spitting down on the plutocrats in the 30-cent orchestra seats. Instead, she pondered over the situation at curtain. All very well and good that the hero came in the nick of time to grind the coffee. If he hadn't dropped in... What then? The heroine would have been discharged. All right, and so what? After she got hungry enough, she'd go out and find another job. She'd go out scrubbing floors like Mama or graft chop suey off of her men friends like Floss Gaddis did. The grocery store job was important only because it said so in the play. She wasn't satisfied with the play she saw the following Saturday either. All right. The long-lost lover came home just in time to pay the mortgage. What if he had been held up and couldn't make it? The landlord would have had to give them 30 days to get out. At least that's how it was in Brooklyn. In that month, something might turn up. If it didn't and they had to get out, well, they'd have to make the best of it. The pretty heroine would have had to get on piecework in the factory. Her sensitive brother would have to go out peddling papers. The mother would have to do cleaning by the day. But they'd live. You betcha they'd live, thought Francie grimly. It takes a lot of doing to die. Francie couldn't understand why the heroine didn't marry the villain. 
It would solve the rent problem, and surely a man who loved her so much that he was willing to go through all kinds of fuss because she wouldn't have him wasn't a man to ignore. At least, he was around while the hero was off on a wild goose chase. She wrote her own third act to that play, What Would Happen If? She wrote it out in conversations and found it and found it a remarkably easy way of writing. In a story, you had to explain why people were the way they were, but when you wrote in conversation, you didn't have to do that because the things the people said explained what they were. Francie had no trouble selling herself on dialogue. Once more, she changed her mind about what profession she'd follow. She decided she wouldn't be an actress after all she'd be a writer of plays. Chapter 29 In the summer of that same year, Johnny got the notion that his children were growing up ignorant of the great ocean that washed the shores of Brooklyn. Johnny felt that they ought to go out to sea in a ship, so he decided to take them for a rowboat ride at Carnacy and do a little deep sea fishing on the side. He had never gone fishing and he'd never been in a rowboat, but that's the idea he got. Weirdly tied up with this idea, and by a reasoning process known only to Johnny, was the idea of taking little Tilly along on the trip. Little Tilly was the four-year-old child of neighbors whom he had never met. In fact, he had never seen little Tilly, but he got this idea that he had to make something up to her on account of her brother, Gussie. It all tied up with the notion of going to Carnacy. Gussie, a boy of six, was a murky legend in the neighborhood. A tough little hellion with an under or an overdeveloped underlip. He had been born, like other babies, and nursed at his mother's great breasts. But there, all resemblance to any child, living or dead, ceased. His mother tried to wean him when he was nine months old. But Gussie wouldn't stand for it. Denied the breast, he refused a bottle, food, or water. He lay in his crib and whimpered. His mother, fearful that he would starve, resumed nursing him. He sucked contentedly, refusing all other food, and lived off of his mother's milk until he was nearly two years old. The milk stopped then because his mother was with child again. Gussie sulked and bided his time for nine long months. He refused cow's milk in any form or container and took to drinking black coffee. Little Tilly was born, and the mother flowed with milk again. Gussie went into hysterics the first time he saw the baby nursing. He lay on the floor, screaming and banging his head. He wouldn't eat for four days, and he refused to go to the toilet. He got haggard, and his mother got frightened. She thought it wouldn't do any harm to give him the breast just once. That was her big mistake. He was like a dope fiend getting the stuff after her long period of deprivation. He wouldn't let go. He took all of his mother's milk from that time on, and little Tilly, a sickly baby, 
had to go on the bottle. Gussie was three years old at this time and big for his age. Like other boys, he wore knee pants and heavy shoes with brass toe tips. As soon as he saw his mother unbutton her dress, he ran to her. He stood up while nursing, an elbow on his mother's knee, his feet crossed jauntily, and his eyes roving around the room. Standing to nurse was not such a remarkable feat as his mother's breasts were mountainous and practically rested on her lap when released. Gussie was indeed a fearful sight nursing that way, and he looked not unlike a man with his foot on a bar rail smoking a fat, pale cigar. The neighbors found out about Gussie and discussed his pathological state in hushed whispers. Gussie's father got so that he wouldn't sleep with his wife. He said that she bred monsters. The poor woman figured and figured on a way to wean Gussie. He was too big to nurse, she decided. He was going on four. She was afraid his second teeth wouldn't come in straight. One day, she took a can of stove blackening and a brush and closed herself in the bedroom where she copiously blackened her left breast with the stove polish. With a lipstick, she drew a wide, ugly mouth with frightening teeth in the vicinity of the nipple. She buttoned her dress and went into the kitchen and sat in her nursing rocker near the window. When Gussie saw her, he threw the dice with which he had been playing under the wash tubs and trotted over for feeding. He crossed his feet, planted his elbow on her knee, and waited. Gussie want titty? asked his mother wheedlingly. Yup. All right. Gussie's gonna get nice titty. <laughs> Suddenly, she ripped open her dress and thrust the horribly made-up breast into his face. Gussie was paralyzed with fright for a moment. Then he ran away screaming and hid under the bed where he stayed for 24 hours. He came out, at last trembling. He went back to drinking black coffee and shuddered every time his eyes went to his mother's bosom. Gussie was weaned. The mother reported her success all over the neighborhood. It started a new fashion in weaning called giving the baby the Gussie. Johnny heard the story and contemptuously dismissed Gussie from his mind. He was concerned about little Tilly. He thought she had been cheated out of something very important and might grow up thwarted. He got a notion that a boat ride off the Carnacy shore might wipe out some of the wrong her unnatural brother had done her. He sent Francie around to ask, could little Tilly go with them? The harassed mother consented happily. The next Sunday, Johnny and the three children set out for Carnacy. Francie was 11 years old, nearly 10, and little Tilly well past three. Johnny wore his tuxedo and derby and a fresh collar and dicky. Francie and Neely wore their everyday clothes. Little Tilly's mother, in honor of the day, had dressed her up in a cheap but fancy lace dress trimmed with dark pink ribbon. On the trolley ride out, they sat in the front seat and Johnny made friends with the motorman and they talked politics. They got off at the last stop, which was Carnacy, 
and found their way to a little wharf on which was a tiny shack. A couple of waterlogged rowboats bobbed up and down on the frayed ropes which held them to the wharf. A sign over the shack read, Fishing Tackle and Boats for Rent. Underneath was a bigger sign which said, Fresh Fish to Take Home for Sale Here. Johnny negotiated with the man and, as was his way, made a friend of him. The man invited him into the shack for an eye-opener saying that he was only... The man invited him into the shack for an eye-opener, saying that he himself only used the stuff for a nightcap. While Johnny was inside getting his eyes opened, Neely and Francie pondered how a nightcap could also be an eye-opener. Little Tilly stood there in her lace dress and said nothing. Johnny came out with a fishing pole and a rusty tin can filled with worms in mud. The friendly man untied the rope from the least sorry of the rowboats, put the rope in Johnny's hand, wished him luck, and went back to his shack. Johnny put the fishing stuff into the bottom of the boat and helped the children in. Then he crouched on the wharf, the bit of rope in his hand, and gave instructions about boats. There is always a wrong and a right way to get on a boat, said Johnny, who had never been on any boat except an excursion boat once. The right way is to give the boat a shove and then jump in it before it drifts out to sea, like this. He straightened up, pushed the boat from him, leaped, and fell into the water. The petrified children stared at him. A second before, Papa had been standing on the dock above them. Now he was below them, in the water. The water came to his neck, and his small waxed mustache and derby hat were in the clear. His derby was still straight on his forehead. Johnny, as surprised as the children, stared at them a moment before he said, "'Don't any of you damned kids dare to laugh!' He climbed into the boat, almost upsetting it. They didn't dare laugh aloud, but Francie laughed so hard inside that her ribs hurt. Neely was afraid to look at his sister. He knew that if their eyes met, he'd burst out laughing. Little Tilly said nothing. Johnny's collar and Dickie were a sodden, a sodden paperish mess. He stripped them off and threw them overboard. He rowed out to sea waveringly, but with silent dignity. When he came to what he thought was a likely spot, he announced that he was going to drop anchor. The children were disappointed when they discovered that the romantic phrase simply meant that you threw a lump of iron attached to a rope overboard. Horrified, they watched Papa squeamishly impale a muddy worm on a hook. The fishing started. It consisted in baiting the hook, casting it dramatically, waiting a while, pulling it up minus the worm and fish, and starting the whole thing over again. The sun grew bright and hot. Johnny's tuxedo dried to a stiff, wrinkled, greenish outfit. The children started to get a whopping case of sunburn. After what seemed hours, Papa announced, to their intense relief and happiness, that it was time to eat. He wound up the tackle, put it away, pulled up the anchor, and made for the wharf. 
the boat seemed to go in a circle, which made the wharf get farther away. Finally, they made sure a few hundred yards further down. Johnny tied up the boat, told the children to wait in it, and went ashore. He said he was going to treat them to a nice lunch. He came back after a while, walking sideways, carrying hot dogs, huckleberry pie, and strawberry pop. They sat in the rocking boat tied to the rotting wharf, looked down into the slimy green water that smelled of de decaying fish, and ate. Johnny had had a few drinks ashore, which made him sorry that he had hollered at the kids. He told them that they could laugh at his falling into the water if they wanted to, but somehow they couldn't bring up a laugh. The time was past for that. Papa was very cheerful, Francie thought. This is the life, he said, away from the maddening crowd. Ah, oh, there's nothing like going down to the sea in a ship. We're getting away from it all, he ended up cryptically. After their amazing lunch, Johnny rode them out to sea again. Perspiration poured down from under his derby, and the wax in the points of his mustache melted, causing the neat adornment to change into disorganized hair on his upper lip. He felt fine. He sang lustily as he rode. Sailing, sailing over the bounding main. He rode and rode and kept going around in a circle and never did get out to sea. Eventually, his hands got so blistered that he didn't feel like rowing anymore. Dramatically, he announced that he was going to pull for the shore. He pulled and pulled and finally made it by rowing in smaller and smaller circles and making the circles come near the wharf. He never noticed that the three children were pea green in the spots where they were not beet red from the sunburn. If he had only known it, the hot dogs, huckleberry pie, strawberry pop, and worms squirming on the hook weren't doing them much good. At the wharf, he leapt to the dock and the children followed his example. All made it, excepting Tilly, who fell into the water. Johnny stood. Johnny threw himself flat on the dock, reached, at, reached in, and fished her out. Little Tilly stood there, her lace dress wet and ruined, but she said nothing. Although it was a broiling hot day, Johnny peeled off his tuxedo jacket, knelt down, and wrapped it around the child. The arms dragged in the sand. Then Johnny took her up in her, his arms and strode up and down the dock, patting her back soothingly and singing her a lullaby. Little Tilly didn't understand a thing of all that had happened that day. She didn't understand why she had been put into a boat, why she had fallen into the water, or why the man was making such a fuss over her. She said nothing. When Johnny felt that she was comforted, he put her down and went into the shack where he had either an eye-opener or a nightcap. He bought three flounders from the man for a quarter. He came out with the wet fish wrapped in a newspaper. He told his children that he had promised to bring home some fresh-caught fish to Mama. The principal thing, said Papa, 
is that I am bringing home fish that were caught at Carnacy. It makes no difference who caught them. The point is that we went fishing and were bringing home fish. His children knew that he wanted Mama to think that he caught the fish. Papa didn't ask them to lie. He just asked them not to be too fussy about the truth. The children understood. They boarded one of those trolley cars that had two long benches facing each other. They made a queer row. First, there was Johnny in green, wrinkled, salt-stiff pants, an undershirt full of big holes, a derby hat, and a disorderly mustache. Next came little Tilly, swallowed up in his coat with salt water dripping from under it and forming a brackish pool on the floor. Francie and Neely came next. Their faces were brick red and they sat very rigid, trying not to be sick. People got on the car, sat across from them, and stared curiously. Johnny sat upright, the fish in his lap, trying not to think of the holes in his exposed undershirt. He looked over the heads of the passengers, pretending to study an X-Lax advertisement. More people got on, the car got crowded, but no one would sit next to them. Finally, one of the fish worked its way out of the sodden newspaper and fell on the floor, where it lay slimily in the dust. It was too much for little Tilly. She looked into the fish's glazed eye, said nothing, but vomited silently and thoroughly all over Johnny's tuxedo jacket. Francie and Neely, as if waiting for that cue, also threw up. Johnny sat there with two exposed fish in his lap, one at his feet, and kept staring at the ad. He didn't know what else to do. When the grisly trip was ended, Johnny took Tilly home, feeling that his was the responsibility of explaining. The mother never gave him a chance to explain. She screamed when she saw her dripping, befouled child. She snatched the coat off, threw it in Johnny's face, and called him a Jack the Ripper. Johnny tried and tried to explain, but she wouldn't listen. Little Tilly said nothing. Finally, Johnny got a word in edgewise. Lady, I think your little girl has lost her speech. Whereupon the mother went into hysterics. You did it! You did it! She screamed at Johnny. Can't you make her say something? The mother grabbed the child and shook her and shook her. Speak! She screamed. Say something! Finally, little Tilly opened her mouth, smiled happily, and said, Thanks. Katie gave Johnny a tongue lashing and said that he wasn't fit to have children. The children in question were alternating between the chills and hot flashes of a bad case of sunburn. Katie nearly cried when she saw the ruin of Johnny's only suit. It would cost a dollar to get it cleaned, steamed, and pressed, and she knew it would never be the same again. As for the fish, they were found to be in an advanced state of decay and had to be thrown into the garbage can. The children went to bed. 
Between chills and fever and bouts of nausea, they buried their heads under the covers and laughed silently and bed-shakingly at the remembrance of Papa standing in the water. Johnny sat at the kitchen window until far into the night, trying to figure out why everything had been so wrong. He had sung many a song about ships and going down to the sea in them with a heave-ho and a heave-to. He wondered why it hadn't turned out the way it said in songs. The children should have returned exhilarated and with a deep and abiding love for the sea, and he should have returned with a fine mess of fish. Why, oh why, hadn't it turned out the way it did in a song? Why did there have to be his blistered hands and his spoiled suit and sunburn and rotting fish and nausea? Why didn't Lily, little Tilly's mother understand the intention and overlook the result? He couldn't figure it out. He couldn't figure it out. The songs of the sea had betrayed him.